Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 171 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser. No Andrew Frankel this week, but I've got a special guest in his place. Um, a very special guest, actually. Steve Nichols, one of the great Formula One designers, won multiple world championships with McLaren, um, designed some sensational cars. And he's also recently, just last week, in fact, revealed his first road car. So we start by talking about his road car, the Nichols N1A. Um, and then we get into Formula One, how he got started in F1, um, his time at McLaren, including that extraordinary Senna Prost era, um, and then his experiences at Ferrari, uh, and and after that, and some of the drivers, some of the fantastic, the wonderful drivers, the world champions that he worked with. Um, so hopefully it's a good listen. There's some background noise. Um, the sound quality might not be the best, but you can hear Steve very clearly. Um, so I think you'll enjoy listening. But before we get started, we do have some news to share with you, news of our first ever live podcast recording, really our first social event. Um, it's at Henry's Car Barn later on in August. Um, and it's for now, it's a subscriber-only thing. We've made tickets available only to subscribers to the Intercooler. Um, and actually, ticket sales have gone really well. I should say we've got a, a guest um, for that live podcast recording, Henry Catchpole, um, who's one of our writers, of course. And we're going to be recording a podcast in front of an audience. And it's a bit of a, a social evening. We're going to be putting on food and drink. There'll be some other TI writers there uh, at this wonderful venue, Henry's Car Barn near Gaydon. Um, so it promises to be a really special evening. Now, as I record this, most of the tickets have gone. We only 
release them for sale on Saturday morning, and on Monday morning, there are only a few left. So by the time this episode goes out, they might all be gone. Um, If that is the case, worry not, because we have a second event already in the works, and we will be sharing news of that very soon. So if you want to come along to one of our live podcast recordings, just stay tuned to our channels, the app, the website, our social media, and we'll have news of our next live event um, very soon. But for now, enjoy this episode of the podcast with F1 designer Steve Nichols. We saw your first road car last week, Steve, the Nichols N1A, N for Nichols. Um, we'll come on to the specification in a moment, but it's clearly and um, proudly inspired by the McLaren M1A. Um, that's the racing car that really put McLaren on the map in the 60s. Has that always been a favourite car of yours, the M1A? Well, I have quite liked it. And, and yeah, you know, I've been a, a fan of McLaren for a long time, really. And, you know, you had these legendary figures back then. Bruce McLaren founded a company, designed a car, uh, raced the car. You know, the sort of thing you just wouldn't get these days, uh, similar to Jack Brabham. Um, so that that was always something quite special. And then, of course, I, I uh, started in Formula One with with. McLaren and so yeah I've been quite a fan and the M1A being effectively uh, Bruce's first car uh, I like the look of it and um, my friend uh, John Minan and I that started this project with uh, uh, the thought was to do a car that took its uh, aesthetic considerations from that original M1A and, and it was uh, his idea to call it the N1A and name it after me. Uh, I was a little reluctant in the beginning, tend to like to be more uh, under the radar, so to speak, but but uh, he convinced me to let it be called the, the Nichols and, uh, and the N1A resonated a little bit with the M1A. And, uh, so that's kind of the way it all started. And of course you can see the aesthetic connections um, some styling considerations uh, connected to the M1A uh, it's it's a little wider you know the wheels and tires are a bit bigger so it's wider and it's a bit longer than the original but you can you can still see the the styling cues so the car generally is a combination of uh, of historical elements mostly aesthetic and then the more modern elements so let me run through the specification and to everyone listening just have a think about how many new cars in production today have a specification quite like this one so the n1a is open top of course weighs about 900 kilograms has up to 650 brake horsepower in a 900 kilo car from a seven liter chevy small block v8 with a dry sump so the engine is nice and low carbon fibre and aluminium construction. ABS and power steering are optional. It does have traction control. Um, It appears to be a raw, stripped-back driver's car, the likes of which we just don't see on sale today. Um, I think it's extraordinary. Huge credit to you and everyone you're working with for producing something quite like this. Now, is is it a track car or is it a road car? Is it a weekend car? How do you sort of imagine people will use it well probably all of the above it's uh, officially called a track day car I suppose uh, 
it will be road legal and obviously you can take it on the track and that's probably where it will be most at home uh, but it is road legal and you know sunny afternoon you want to drive to the pub and have lunch and show up for whatever you know then obviously it's uh, it's good for that uh, from the work that we've done so far it, it has very good uh, road manners uh, it doesn't do nasty things under hard acceleration yeah. so it's uh, it's quite and, and that engine is quite tractable and it's not sort of peaky like a, a race car uh, so it, it's good for both and people can do what they like with it you know drive it on the road drive it on the track uh, probably not best to go to the supermarket for the weekly grocery shop but you know it's it's fun to drive and a bit old school manual gearbox um, normally aspirated has that rather lovely american v8 sound you know so it's got a lot going for it visually and uh, from the point of view of the sound it, it makes so uh, uh, yeah, it's turned out very well, I think, and the, the specification that you mentioned is quite lightweight, quite a lot of power, hence I think it's a good idea to have uh, traction control to to give people a bit more confidence and a bit more of a safety factor, and uh, as your driving skills improve, perhaps you want to tone down the traction control, but... It is a little bit of a worry of mine that it's got quite a lot of power and, and quite lightweight, so people have to uh, uh, be respectful of that. Uh, our intention is to include some driver training with some professional drivers to make sure that the customers are, uh, can adequately handle the car and would pr- improve their experience by having some instruction from professional drivers. And, because we want them to enjoy the ride and not just be frightened by the power, if you see it. So uh, what stage is the project at now? We've seen um, what looks like the finished thing, but there's still some more testing to do? Yes, uh, there's a few things to finish off, a little bit of plumbing and some electrical, uh, some, some things to do with wiring loom and uh, startup should be later this week or early next week. And then we'd start a, a um, testing process. First thing would be just to do, would, we'd do some shakedown tests, uh, just gently driving around, so to speak, uh, to, to make sure every, the systems all work. And uh, a bit similar to you know the Formula One cars, they always do an installation lab first and check things over. And then we carry on to just do some road miles. You put some road miles on it to start to verify reliability and any issues that might come up uh, as we put more miles on the car. And then after that, I'd like a a more uh, intensive testing program with some uh, professional drivers to do some development work with the car, some tuning, you know, where are we regarding springs and dampers and things like that so some suspension tuning and my own driving experience has been pretty much entirely with small formula cars so I'd, I'd like some guys to drive the car that are more experienced with heavier uh, high-powered sports cars uh, to uh, you know tune the handling and make sure everything's uh, exactly right
Uh, and the tuning can be altered a bit if, if the customer wants it a little more track-oriented, we can do that. Or if they feel like maybe they'll be doing more road driving with it, then maybe soften it off a, a bit so we can, we can tune it to whatever the individual customers prefer. Now, you haven't um, <clears throat> announced the price yet. It's, it'll only ever be built in very limited numbers. Um, but you have told mm. me before we started recording that you don't want it to be multi-millions. You want it to be a slightly more affordable kind of car than that, don't you? Well, that's right. Uh, and my partner, John, he, he's more involved with the marketing side and pricing and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we were going to do a limited production run first of, of 15 cars um, and these will be a higher spec and a higher price uh, and they're each named after the 15 races that uh, we won with the MP44 in 1988 um, so uh, the, I think the price of those John is telling me is going to be in the neighbourhood of 375 thousand pounds and then there may be a few options and then we'd have uh, the the standard car the more uh, volume production although there's it's never going to be huge volume uh, it depends on the uptake and how many people want one but yeah you might get to the point where you're making uh, one a month or something if if uh, if the demand is there and those cars would be substantially cheaper Still quite expensive, uh, a couple hundred thousand pounds maybe. It's so hard to make anything really inexpensive in small, small volume. I'd like it to be a lot less expensive so that more people could afford it, you know, enthusiasts could afford it. But it's just so hard to make anything in, uh, really inexpensive in, in small volumes. But. So, you know, not exactly inexpensive, but it's not the multi-million pound sort of cars that you see from various manufacturers' yeah. cars. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, we're talking a lot of money, but these are sensible numbers compared to some that we, we hear about these days. Two, three, mm. four million, you know, yeah. it's all gone well, yeah, at that, know, the top I end know. of the market, really. So, yeah. Uh, I, I think it'd be really nice to be able to make, I don't know... Uh, a 50 or a 60 or a 70,000 sure. pound car that was high performance and much more affordable but, but that's so hard to do unless you're really a major manufacturer and making things in much uh, much greater volume so it's kind of an impossible dream for making make a car that inexpensive uh, be just because of the cost of doing things in small volume I think it's fantastic you know the the big OEMs, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, even the Porsches, all the others, they, they seem to have no interest in building these very pure driver's cars. And it does take the likes of Nichols and the likes of even resto modding companies to produce these mm. kind of cars that mm. die-hard enthusiasts like us look at and just think, wow, that's fantastic. So brilliant. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad yeah. there are people out there building these things. Well, I yeah, I hope that most of these cars end up in the hands of enthusiasts who use yeah. them and drive them, and I don't want them to end up in somebody's collection, no. <laughs> you know, and just, uh, under a car cover at some car storage place. You know, it'd be nice that they're actually out there driving them, using them, uh, enjoying them. Well, we will keep a close eye on the N1A. We look forward to hearing more about it, seeing it testing. 
learning a few more details mm. and maybe having a go at some point. Um, but mm. well done for getting it this far. I can only imagine how challenging it is to. Well, it's been, it has been very challenging. It's taken much longer time than I wanted it to. Um, we've always been operating with quite limited resources, which means it takes longer. And the whole virus thing didn't help because suppliers are all delayed, you know, with their own COVID problems. And so, so that, that's been a struggle too. Uh, but we have managed to struggle through on fairly limited funds and, and get it to this point. And, and now we've, we've taken a couple of deposits, so it's, it's starting to roll, I suppose. We didn't really want to start taking deposits until it was complete and people could see exactly what they were going to get. So, uh, but we, we have had a couple of people that were um, sort of insistent on uh, putting down a deposit to sort of ensure their position in the build uh, schedule so uh, hopefully now that it's officially launched uh, uh, we've we've had quite a lot of contacts from quite a lot of people and hopefully uh, many of those are serious and and, uh, we can get a little bit of a production run going So it is an open top very powerful sports car, road legal um, it looks like a sort of 1960s Can-Am car, and that is what the McLaren M1A eventually evolved into. Um, mm. But of course, it's informed by your 20-plus years as an engineer and designer in Formula One, right? So let's get on to that, mm. shall we? Um, okay. You have that rarest of things in the Formula One paddock. It's an American accent. It's, it's, <laughs> it's unusual, isn't it? Even now to... Well, to hear an American accent yeah. in Formula One. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Were you yeah. aware of F1 yeah. growing up? Well, I was aware mm. uh, from a, well from quite an early age. 1961, I, I started racing go karts when I was just a kid, and of course they were they're done on little miniature road courses. So I was always more interested in in road racing compared to American drag racing or stock cars. Uh, So that led me inevitably to be interested in Formula One. And my first real interest in Formula One came in 1962. Uh, There was an article in 1962 in Road and Track magazine. The cover article was headlined uh, Chapman's Tubeless Wonder, and it was kind of the launch of the Lotus 25. Mm, The monocoque car. And... Yeah, monocoque car and beautiful, slender, simple, elegant, just everything that I thought design should be. And so I was kind of blown away by that car and decided then as a child that I wanted to be a Formula One designer. Uh, But it's a long way from the Rocky Mountains to Europe and Formula One, so it's been... It's been quite a journey to get there, and inevitably, I, I suppose it's unique, the American accent in Formula One. And I suppose my accent now is, you might call it mid-Atlantic, um, so part English, part American. If I go to America, they think I sound English, but <laughs> in England, they think I sound American. So, you know, I'm a foreigner everywhere, I guess. <laughs> um, so, you, <clears throat> so you knew from a very early age, actually, what you wanted to do. Um, and it was in 1980 that you flew across the Atlantic to start working at McLaren, although it wasn't quite McLaren then, was it? It was just the tail no. end of Project 4, Ron Dennis's organisation, right. before it yeah. merged with 
Team McLaren. That's right, yeah. Um, that was quite an ambitious thing for Ron to take on board, visionary of a, of a man like uh, Ron to take that on, who'd been quite successful as a team owner, operator in Formula 2 and Formula 3. And, and he hired John Barnard, who equally was uh, very visionary in, in uh, wanting to design a Formula 1 car with a carbon monocoque. So incredible to do that. When you think of Ron Dennis taking that sort of risk, uh, nobody else in Formula 1 wanted to take on uh, building a complete Formula 1 monocoque in carbon fibre. Uh, the problem for John and Ron was they couldn't find anybody any of the carbon fibre sort of people, aerospace or whatever in England, that would take that on. They thought it was all too ambitious. So that that gives you the level of ambition and risk that both Ron and John uh, were taking. Uh, I had worked, my sort of first professional job in motor racing was designing dampers for Gabriel, and I designed the dampers for various teams there, including uh, Valsport and John's, where John Barnard was working and for the Chaparral, Jim Hall's Chaparral team. And John obviously did the design on that beautiful Chaparral car as well. So uh, John, I knew, had gone back to England after the Chaparral days to, to, to do this Formula One car for, um, for Ron Dennis and Project Four. And I contacted him looking for a job in Formula One and hence this uh, uh, little introduction in July of uh, 1980 where they had I took a leave of absence from my day job and came over and worked on the original MP44 uh, with John but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself uh, when I first contacted John for a job he was telling me that they couldn't find anybody to make it he, he told me that he wanted to do an innovative new uh, Formula 1 car it was very important in those days to have a slender monocoque so you could have wide uh, aerodynamic side pods to generate more downforce but he didn't like the, the floppy sort of uh, aluminium monocoques that uh, resulted from being quite narrow so he said he wanted to use some innovative new materials and I, I was familiar with carbon fibre from my days in aerospace uh, building rocket motors for the Trident uh, missile um, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles for the Trident submarines so I said to him well that'll be carbon fibre then and he said well yes since you've guessed we want to do a carbon fibre monocoque I can't find anybody to make it and I said I know my ex-colleagues from Hercules where it was my first job out of uh, University, they want to expand the use of carbon fibers into areas outside of Formula or outside of uh, aerospace, and and I think they'd be interested in this because it's a worldwide exposure in areas outside of aerospace. And so I contacted them, and indeed they were interested. And and eventually, uh, uh, John and Ron flew over to Salt Lake City and did a deal with them to help in the manufacture of the. At those first monocoques and, and of course that was the beginning of the carbon revolution you might say and you so you now. made the introduction that enabled the first carbon fiber formula one car to yeah be made. that's right i i without steve nichols was, who knows <laughs> well, that's a bit yeah that might be a bit extreme but uh, 
you know, John had the vision to take the risk on that project, and Ron had the vision to finance it. Uh, and I was able to. All I did was make the introduction to Hercules, and, uh, but you can see what happened from that nucleus or that seed. Yeah, no turning back. You know, all all the WEC cars, all the Formula One cars, everything's made out of carbon yeah. these days, and carbon fiber monocar road cars. You know, even our little N1A has it's got some carbon fiber uh, panels in it. Um, and it, you know, it's quite a sophisticated chassis. It's a bonded aluminium uh, chassis uh, developed by the same people that developed the bonded aluminium chassis for the Lotus road cars. And, uh, and you know, it, it's got these uh, highly developed uh, Chevy engines, the LS series of engines. They've been in development for 70 years, and it's got that little connection to the big banger Can-Am cars, but they're really very sophisticated engines now. You know, they're light and they're powerful and relatively inexpensive. So, you know, it's it's quite a good power plant. And then it's got a highly developed Graziano uh, transaxle like the one used in the Audi R8. Uh, so the combination of that chassis and, and gearbox and the engine, it's all quite sophisticated. And we've brought in people to work on the suspension. I always like to try to get the best people I can in... in in the various areas. So Richard Herdwell, ex-Lotus, has uh, helped us to develop uh, the suspension characteristics. So, uh, uh, you know, all together, uh, it, it looks promising. looks like it's a, it's a very good uh, package. So, so let's, go, let's go back to the first few years at McLaren. Do you remember what you were doing in those early days? Were, were you... I'm the, of course, design and engineering teams in those days were much, much smaller than they are now. Um, so presumably you were fairly heavily well, involved in the cars as a whole? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was great, really. You know, when I, when I first came over in July, uh, this is a pretty sophisticated project, carbon fiber, monocoque, you know, Formula One car, all of that. And there were three of us. Uh, John Barnard was the chief designer and, and there was Anna Jenkins who was already there and, and there was me and it was just the three of us and, and we were doing this sophisticated carbon fibre monocoque, you know, leading edge nobody had ever done it before uh, then when John um, sorry, when Ron sorted out the finances he called it, which was the marriage of uh, Project 4 and Team McLaren to form McLaren International then we inherited from them uh, some more staff. Uh, John Baldwin came over, for example, from uh, McLaren to bolster the design team. And um, we had a couple of draftsmen from McLaren, Mike Locke and Colin Smith, who uh, bolstered the ranks as well, and, and it grew from there. But, you know, even, even when we were doing championship-winning cars in 1984... Uh, I don't know, the whole technical team was maybe 9, 10, 11 people. <laughs> uh, and a few years later in 1988, when we were designing the MP44, the whole technical staff, uh, race engineers, designers, everybody, the whole technical staff was 17 people. And when you consider uh, John had left in tail end of August of uh, 87, so from 87 to 89, you know, we, 
we had to do the MP43 uh, and the MP43B with the new uh, changing over from the from the tag turbo engine to the Honda engine and you know a test car for that and then we did the MP44 uh, and we did an MP44B with 10 cylinder normally aspirated engine and then we did the 5 uh, which was the proper race car with the with the 10 cylinder Honda engine and then we began work on the MP46 which was the 12 cylinder car all that in the period of three or four years with 17 people you know wow hence wow. the great hit. <laughs> Let's let's talk about the MP44, 1988, famously won 15 of that year's 16 mm. races with Alan Prost and Etten Senna. Now, this means that you are one of few people around today who can tell us what everyone at Red Bull is feeling <laughs> at the moment, right? Bear with me. The RB19, um, this year's Red Bull is a similarly dominant car. Absolutely. In fact, it's won yeah. all, t- all 12 races yeah. so far. It might go one better than the four four by winning every race. Well, it, it could do. It could do. I, I was kind of hoping that it might be a bit poetic, so to speak, if uh, if Lando could uh, win a race or two, and, yeah. and preserve, McLaren could preserve McLaren's own records. You know, so, <laughs> at the time, you know, we we never thought that it would win all the races, but we kept on winning and. And I thought, well, you know, eventually something will happen. And, uh, and of course, that happened at Monza, where we had a minor technical problem with Proscar, a bad spark plug, as it turned out. And then it, it was hard for us to win some of those races. Um, you have to think back to what it was like then. It was a transition year where, where the FIA wanted the normally aspirated cars to win. That was the future. And, so they had three and a half liters, they had unlimited fuel and 15 kilos lighter. Uh, they were supposed to win. Um, so it was hard for us to win. And, and you take that Monza race, uh, we used to struggle on the fuel. We had 150 liters of fuel. And I know they talk these days about lift and coast. And, you know, we had to do all that too, lift and coast and limit the revs and limit the boost. And the drivers had to take it out of themselves and out of the car you know they couldn't afford to just cruise with loads of horsepower so we were in a situation at Monza where it was a struggle for us and uh, to stay ahead of everybody and 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 we used to go into fuel debt as I'd call it we might be a lap or two down on the fuel because we'd used more boost and more revs to stay ahead and then towards the end of the race we had to try to gain that back and that's the situation we were in and um Senna was in a position where he had to be absolutely on the limit every lap, every corner, taking it out of himself, taking it out of the car and not using too much fuel. So he arrived at the chicane with Schlesser in the way and he's got a hundredth of a second to decide what he's going to do and he knows he's got to go for it, which he did, and which was absolutely the right thing to do, but it just didn't quite work out. <laughs> but... I've always kind of thought since, in a way, for the sport, it's quite good that we missed one race so that everybody's got that perfect season to to shoot for. <laughs> it was also the first Italian Grand Prix. Yeah, that's right. The, the old that's right. And then yeah. Ferrari died. So there's, there's, and Ferrari yeah. won that race. So yeah, it, it was all quite nice. I would have still liked to have won that race, but it was all quite nice. <laughs> I thought it was a great year, too. 
<coughs> in that a lot of people, a lot of people have said, oh, well, you know, it was kind of boring, McLaren went on all the races. But on the other hand, I, I, I looked at it, I thought it was a bit like the America's Cup, a challenge race, you know, match race one-on-one. You had the two best drivers in the world at the time and probably still among the very, very best in in a very good car, uh, if I do say so myself. Uh, people will say that maybe the competition wasn't so strong, but the reason competition wasn't so strong is because the car was very, very good. The drivers were very, very good. The whole organization was very, very good, and so you get what you got. Uh, there was no restriction on the others to do the same. You know, they had their design teams, they had their marketing people generating the budget and all that, and we just did a better job in every area than they did. And that's exactly the same as you get now with uh, with the RB19, a very, very good car with at least one very, very good driver. Uh, and it does get to be a little bit boring if Verstappen's winning all the races and wouldn't it be great to have Leclerc or Norris or... Lewis or somebody in there giving him a bit of a hard time, which yeah. is what we had yeah. then. You know, Prost and Senna mm-hmm. going at it, hammer and tongue. I, I thought it was very exciting and certainly pretty stressful for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you think, having been in that position yourself, what do you think they'll be feeling at Red Bull? Are they smug or is there a kind of anxiety that comes with having the dominant car? You're worried that they're after you. They're kind they, of won't, uh, they won't be smug. And they won't be taking up for granted, and they will be very, they will be being very careful to make sure that the car is absolutely legal at every race because they won't want to stumble over that possibility. The mechanics will be right on the edge, right on their toes. They'll be making sure that everything is perfect in the preparation because they will know that they have a very good driver, and they will know that they have a very good car and they will know that they don't want to be the ones to screw it up. So they'll be trying to be absolutely perfect in their preparation and they'll be trying to be absolutely perfect in their pit stops. And nobody in that whole organization is going to want to screw it up, so to speak. So even though they're in this dominant position, uh, they're an excellent team and they'll be trying to do everything absolutely perfect. How tense was the team in '88? Senna, Prost, not really communicating directly with one another. Clearly a huge amount of respect between them. They're the only two who have a chance of winning the championship because the car is so dominant. Is, it, is the environment just charged the whole time, all season yes. long? <laughs> it was very tense. And I thought it was fantastic. I loved it being tense and I loved being under pressure and trying to do everything perfect. And it made it seem important to me Uh, and it was stressful you know you've got multi-million pound budget and you've got legendary drivers and legendary team owners and and you don't want to screw it up and you know always in the back of my mind I was the race engineer I was the designer of the car and I was also Senna's race engineer for his first championship and always in the back of my mind was don't screw up Senna's championship so yeah it was very tense but Fantastic, you know. I, maybe everybody's the same, but I didn't want an easy life. Uh, I wanted to do something that was difficult, and, and I wanted it to work out. And so you make every effort to be as uh, perfect as you possibly can be, because you know 
that both Prost and Senna are also trying to be as perfect as they can possibly be. And in fact, as you know, you told me to describe what it would be like at, uh, at Red Bull right now, and that's based on my own experience in 1988 with the McLaren. But I remember Rick Goodhand once, one of the mechanics, saying to me, we knew that it was a fantastic car and a fantastic design, and we knew that if anybody was going to screw up, it would be us as the mechanics, and so they were under pressure. They put wow. themselves under pressure to make sure that they did everything they could as perfect as possible and it was like that throughout the whole organization which is why it turned out the way it did because just everybody at every level was trying to be as perfect as possible so after the 89 season prost left mclaren went to ferrari and he took one very important asset with him you <laughs> Would, was was that an, was that a, was that an easy move for you or did you have to really deliberate uh, it, it wasn't an easy move, and and I was. It was a compliment in a way from from Alan, uh, and uh, it was at Adelaide. For, you know, he asked me. Uh, he said he was going to Ferrari, and he wanted me to come with. Um, so I had to have discussions then with with Ron. Uh, we disagreed on a couple of things. Uh, we disagreed on the organisation. Uh, another interesting little story. You remember Gerard uh, Ducruz, who was the Lotus uh, chief designer at the time, and uh, he was such an ace, plug, really great guy, lovely to talk to in the pit lane and all that. And, and of course, our car was making his car look a bit uh, uh, secondhand. And but he was he was so good about it, and, uh, and he said to me. Don't let Ron get away with it. Make sure you get the money. <laughs> but, but, but Ron wasn't willing to pay the money, and Ferrari were. <laughs> so <laughs> the combination of the difference of opinion on money and and the difference uh, on the organization uh, meant I ended up going to Ferrari. Uh, it would have been nice, really, to remain at McLaren, and, and it would have been nice if Ron and I could come to an agreement on the organisation uh, and on the, the money. Yeah, you always sort of think that, well, money wasn't the most important thing to me, but I was more interested in human resources and financial resources for the team so that you could do what you needed to do and do what you wanted to do. But you realise that... It's a pretty volatile environment, and your career might not last forever. Uh, and so, you'd like to make a little money out of it while you can. But really, more important to me was the resources, human and financial, for the team. Uh, so, you know, I ended up going to Ferrari, but in a lot of ways, I, I wish we could have worked things out with Ron for me to, to stay at McLaren, your yeah. first love, and all. So in so for the nineteen ninety season, off you go to Marinello. You have spoken yeah. about this in the past, but you've come from a a team. Okay, you didn't agree with the the plans for the organisation of the the engineering department going forward, but it was a well run mm. team, wasn't it? That was a slick operation at McLaren. Yeah, and you yes. found something else mm. at Marinello. Chaos. <laughs> Chaos. Um, <laughs> but you know it was it's a little bizarre. 
you know, the driver, they always said the drivers, oh, they always want to drive for Ferrari. And I, I never really had this strong desire as an engineer to to go to Ferrari, but, you know, it's a big team, had the budget and a lot of staff and all of that. So it, it did kind of make sense, uh, but only in the light of not being able to come to terms with, with Rome. But I always thought of McLaren, it never really hit me, the whole Ferrari myth. But when I did get there, there was a couple of things that did strike me. You know, you walk into the building and and there's these photographs on the wall, you know, these sort of antique sepia print things and all these legendary old drivers in from the 50s. And, you know, you think, wow, it is a little bit of a legend, isn't it? Mm. And, um, and, and there's uh, Enzo's office, sort of like a mausoleum or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so you are struck by the history. And it had a certain elegance to it uh, as well. The cars were just red. Uh, I remember seeing a test once and, you know, you've got the motor home and the, and the big Arctic transporter and it's just red with a big Cavallino on it, a Ferrari. You know, on the bottom, there's a little grey stripe with all their suppliers and things, but there's not big... You know, it's got Fiat on it, you know, because they own the company, but not the sort of blatant sponsorship that you might see elsewhere. And, and even at the racetrack, the, the engineering staff and the, uh, and the management staff had these navy blue dress trousers uh, and a white shirt with a Cavallino emblem, and that's it. You know, and it just had a certain elegance to it, you know, which, which I, I quite liked. And that engine, you know, uh, is there anything like a V12 Ferrari screaming at no. 19,000 RPM? <laughs> you know, it's just otherworldly. Uh, and you could wander out into the machine shop and they're, they're machining blocks and heads and crankshafts and, uh, you know, it's just phenomenal, really. You know, they do the whole, the whole car. Uh, and it, it was fantastic. But there's the chaos and... Uh, I used to say it's like the dream and the nightmare all happening at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's just so hard to try to get the chaos uh, under control. And the Italian people, they're so lovely and, and uh, they deserve to have their hero team Ferrari be successful, but it seems so hard for them to keep the chaos under control. And when they've been the most successful is when they had a lot of foreign involvement uh, Sean Todd, Ross Braun, Schumacher, uh, Nigel Stepney, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et and, and I don't know, it's just, they're so lovely and they're so artistic and they're so creative. And But when it gets right down to hardcore technical, what it takes to win Formula One races and Formula One championships, uh, I, I don't know, they, they just come unglued, it seems like. And, which is what you see now. Yeah. It's just a shame that Ferrari seem to be imploding and then they can't be giving Red Bull a hard time. And, you know, for the fans, for the sport generally, it would be so fantastic to see Ferrari up there. It would be fantastic to see Mercedes up there. They, they seem to be imploding a little bit and they're losing a lot of staff to other teams. And, you know, the and. and Cowell's name but developed that engine and disappears off and I, I don't know maybe they suffer from a loss of uh, 
of their human resources. But it's just a shame that somebody can't give them a hard time. You know, Aston Martin made a big step this year, and now it's sort of seems to be mm. dissolving a yeah. bit. I was hoping that them, with their advantage because of their lowly position last year, and they, they get more aero uh, resources. Uh, I was hoping that maybe as the year progressed that that uh, Red Bull's limited resources would hamper them and, and uh, Aston Martin's better position regards aero resources would start to bite at Red Bull a bit, but it seems like Adrian's done such a good job yeah. that they can get along on 10% of those resources, you know. It shows the genius of, of the man, mm. I suppose. It's, it, ha- well, it hasn't panned out the way many of us hoped, has it really? Mm. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to see three or four teams up there. Yeah. And, so, and even inside Red Bull, unfortunately, I'm sure he's a nice guy and he's a very good driver, but he he just can't Perez can't seem to give no. Verstappen the sort of workout that we'd like to see. Whereas in the '88 season, uh, Prost and Senna were really hard at it, and as you alluded to earlier, it was it was stressful for everybody, uh, and I'm sure it was very stressful for for Prost and Senna, uh, but they were very good at handling that pressure as they needed to be. Uh, and the team functioned normally, which people don't necessarily quite understand. It was very hard for Prost and Senna, but the team functioned normally, and the drivers actually worked well together, but without a personal interface. Uh, all the data was shared and set up and all of that stuff, but they just didn't talk to each other. You know, if, if, if Prost had a question, he'd ask his race engineer, and his race engineer would ask me, and I'd tell him, and then he'd tell Prost. You know, but they didn't talk about <laughs> it. It's a bit like when you go through a divorce, and, and you can't talk to your wife. you you got to talk to the lawyers, and it all goes to the yeah. lawyers. You know, it was a bit like but that, but the team never split. You know, you remember, I can't remember, Rossi and Lorenzo in MotoGP, and they had a... They had a curtain down the middle of the garage. That, that just never happened. It, it never split. It never split right at the race engineer level. You know, me and Neil Oatley, we never split. We worked for McLaren, not for the drivers. And, and therefore, the, the whole thing just never came unzipped. Uh, and Ron was very stressful here, I'm sure, keeping a lid on the battle between the two of them. But... But we used to just kind of laugh about it. You know, the driver's not talking to each other, but the rest of the team was a team. And it just worked, worked normally. You know, the the big problem there wasn't the rift between Prost and Senna. The big problem there was doing everything perfect so that we could win the races and win the world championship. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I just want to come back to Ferrari because I'm so intrigued by the uniquely Ferrari condition. This... They are the, the most. It is the most successful team in Formula One, but it's been there the longest, almost since day one. Um, mm. And actually, as a proportion of the races it's competed in, the the championships it's competed in, um, it's it's won less than other teams. And you, you have to wonder why it's got fantastic resources. It's able to attract the best drivers. Um, can you pinpoint the one malaise? Is it? It, from afar, from where I'm sitting, it looks like it might be short-termism as a result of unbearable pressure. It, it's, it's all that. The short-termism is a problem. Uh, the media pressure is a problem. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting in a way, too, that the whole fiat thing is a little bit of a problem. Uh, I used to get the impression that, that the real... Uh, game going on at Ferrari was was uh, big corporation politics, mm. and and the the Formula One team was the the playing board that that game was played out on, uh, and so you, you you you'd get pressures from from fear, you'd, you'd get pressures from the media, and you know you'd be going off to a race, and you'd see all the senior management they they'd arrive at the airport with hands full of, of newspapers, you know, Gazetto and Correa Della Sera, you know, all of that, and they're reading, what are they saying about us? You know, they have their mind more on the media than, than on the task at hand. And, and I say, just chuck all that shit in the bin and forget about it and get on with your job. Um, and it was hard for that to happen. And... And I arrived there saying, you know, I'm coming from a team that does almost everything almost perfectly. And, uh, you know, you want to win and you're not winning. It means you've got to change what you're doing. It means you have to change your approach. Uh, and we, we need to do that. And they were unwilling to do that. They said, no, 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 no. We don't want to change. Uh, you have to adapt to us. And I'm thinking, well, how's that supposed to work? It works at McLaren. It doesn't work here. And you want me to change from the McLaren mentality, the Ferrari mentality? How's that supposed to work? Um, and I'd, I'd give them this plan. You know, like, we're doing pretty good now. You know, you, you've been quite competitive last year. It's a pretty quick car and all that. The good basis for, for going forward. One problem is that it's not very reliable. And so we need to be absolutely fanatical about the reliability you know, if you got a quick car and they both break down in the race, what use is that? I mean, look what that does. If you're if you're running one two, and both cars break, and your competition now is elevated from third and fourth to first and second, the points turnaround is about thirty points or something. One race can be a season killer. You know, you need to be absolutely reliable, and therefore we started a program where every race. In those days, between almost every race, there'd be a test, three or four day long test. And and we made sure that one driver, at least one driver every day would do a race distance. And uh, and it was that sort of intensive program that started them on their way to ultimate reliability. 
Um, but the whole thing is just too chaotic and they were too worried about the press and the pressures of the press and the pressures of the fans. And so I'm saying to him, to him, you know, we're pretty competitive now and, and we need to continue to be pretty competitive and we need to improve in every area. And, you know, maybe next year we'll win a few more races and the year after that we might sort of be challenging for the championship and in three or four years we've got the possibility of winning a championship if we continue along this program and you need the whole thing to gel and the design team needs time to gel and work together and all pull in the same direction all this sort of stuff all mclaren-esque sort of stuff and they just say no no we want to win the first race and we want to win the championship this year totally unrealistic but that was their attitude and when that didn't happen, they, they, they stir the human resources. You're out, these guys are in, you know. It, it just never had a chance to gel as a team. And so then, after a couple of years of the chaos, they, they finally get the sort of thing I was talking to you about previously. Jean Todd comes in, puts up a firewall, effectively. I'm going to take all the flack. Don't you guys, you know, Ross Braun and all his team and all that, I'll take all the flack. I'll deal with the press. You guys just don't worry about it. Get on with your job. And they did pretty much exactly what I said needed to be done. They established this this fantastic group of people, you know, the drivers like Schumacher, for example, and Ross Braun and some of his boys from Benetton. And, and they had Jean Todt protecting him and they just carried on with the job and it still took them maybe four years for, for Schumacher to win a, win a world championship, which is exactly what I've been telling them. But it took Jean Todd to come along and say, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> uh, and we're going to carry on with this program. And at least they stayed hands-off, so to speak, and let that team get on with it. And they had huge success, and they had almost perfect reliability. And it was a fantastic period. And then gradually, some of those people disappeared, and, and, and the chaos crept in, uh, which is the sort of situation... You've got now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the chaos seems to be taking over, and the mistakes enter in, and and you get what you've got. Mm. Yeah, Ferrari is now contemplating its longest spell without winning a championship ever, um, so which is incredible. And, and they've been in that situation before. Yeah. You know yeah. these huge fallow periods. You know, it's yeah. just, it's just. Sad, and I don't know what the answer is really. Do you need to get more foreigners in to and put them in a position of power where they can calm the chaos? So after your spell at Ferrari, which sounds interesting to say the least, you <laughs> um, you were with Sauber and Jordan and Jaguar, yeah, um, yeah. and later on back at McLaren as a, in a sort of consultant role and involved yeah. in those fantastic Mika Hakkinen years in the late nineties, <laughs> championship winning yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and uh, goodness me, you've worked with some wonderful drivers over the years. So just to close out the the episode, I just want to mm-hmm. talk about some of the drivers you worked with, um, starting with Nicky Lauda. Well, yeah, I, I've been very fortunate, really, to work for a major team like McLaren, major budget, uh, fantastic driver, the whole the whole organization. So Lauda, uh, he was pretty incredible. Um, and of course we had that year in 1984 where he won his last world championship by half a point very intense another very intense sort of season and 
he was great to work with, really. When he when I heard his first come to McLaren, I thought, oh my god, he's gonna he's gonna give us such a hard time, you know. He, he's such a legend, and he's gonna want everything perfect. And but he was a pussycat, really. And I think that was because we were a major team with major resources, and we were able to give him everything he wanted. Uh, he, um, I guess, the most dominant characteristic I thought was his iron willed determination uh, you know you take the big accident and come back in five weeks or whatever it was and, and still not fully healed and, and do the job that he did there and coming back at Monza where the conditions on the day were this misly sort of rain which was exactly the sort of circumstance he was in when he had his huge accident and to come back from that the determination was just incredible. And I remember once testing me, he asked me to go down to the Green Man with him and buy him lunch, uh, Silverstone. And he told me about that experience, about the Nürburgring accident, about Monza, and hearing it like that, straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> you know, just thought it's just wow. incredible. And then fast forward to Prost and Lauda and that season, 84, uh, we got to the French Grand Prix and he's, I can't remember exactly, he's sort of halfway through the season and he's 17, behind, 17 points behind Prost. And he said to me, Dijon, drive out to the circuit with me. And, and he's talking to me on the way out to the circuit and he's saying, this little Frenchman, he, he is so quick uh, and it's hard for me. I can't benefit from his quickness. He can benefit from my experience and the setup we do and all that and it is so hard to beat him. And I'm 17 points behind and the season's half over and, you know, it's really worse than even in the beginning when you had the whole season ahead of you and you were on an even number of points. And I've been trying my hardest, absolutely trying my hardest, but I'm not going to give up and I'm going to win this race and I'm going to win this championship uh, and I thought Jesus that's pretty strong you know to set yourself that goal from the position that you're in but he did win that race mm. uh, Prost had a little problem with a loose wheel nut or something and so it was a bit fortuitous but he won that race and he won that championship by a half a point and it's just mostly through iron will determination. Having said that, he he was a fantastic driver, uh, and he was at least as good as Prost, and he was at least as good as, as Senna. Uh, and their peaks came at different times. Uh, so Prost was on the uphill side, and he was on the downhill side, but he still managed to win that championship. And then you get Prost versus Senna and it's a little bit now Prost's on the downhill side and Senna's on the uphill part of his career and uh, and then you know you finally get the peak with uh, with Senna winning his championship but I worked with all three of those guys and uh, I'd say they were equal uh, mm. different characteristics but the overall result is, the, is that they were equal and their peaks occurred at uh, slightly different times so yeah, Senna, or sorry, uh, Lauda, uh, great driver, all the characteristics you need, bravery, 
set up, determination, willing to lay it right on the line and risk everything when required. You know, just a, just a fantastic otherworldly sort of driver. And apart from his the physical scars from that horrible crash in '76 at the Nurburgring, were you ever aware of him having had that big accident? Did it affect him in any way that you could determine? It, it didn't, to me, seem to affect him. He obviously had the scars, which he didn't really care about. Mm. You know, that was fine. He could still drive a car. He was still good at driving a car, and uh, it may have had some psychological. Impact, you know, it may have caused him to be a little more cautious about things, uh, be more respectful of what he was doing. The speed of the cars, the safety aspect, uh, what happens if you come off the road at the wrong place, uh, that sort of thing. But but he was still extremely good, mm. you know, good at setting up the car and, and racecraft, you know, uh, nursing the tires when you needed to, nursing the car when you needed to, you know, doing whatever you needed to do to get the thing home in the best possible position. He's just extremely good at all of that. And uh, Prost and Senna then, briefly. I mean, we often hear that Prost is called the professor. We often hear that Senna is the virtuoso talent. But it seems to me that they actually overlapped much more than that. That Prost had that preternatural speed and skill. That Senna had that profound understanding of the te- technical aspect of the sport. Is that I think fair? that's all. I think that's all correct. And just just talking about Prost, uh, a lot of people think of him as uh, somehow a bit inferior to Senna, and uh, you know he was more calm and didn't really bring its neck like uh, Senna, perhaps. But the truth of the matter is that he was an incredibly good race car driver. He was also just an absolute normal guy to work with, you know, no sort of uh, diva syndrome or superstar syndrome or anything. He was just a normal, average, everyday guy. Except for one thing, he was freakishly good at driving a race car. And he was so incredibly smooth that it, it didn't particularly look exciting, you know, but he was unbelievably uh, talented and unbelievably good at, uh, at driving a race car. Um, the classic example I can think of was one year at um, Spa. Lauda had damaged his wrist and couldn't participate in, in qualifying, and so I was at a bit of a loose end, and I... I wandered off down to Eau Rouge and, you know, you could go over and stand next to the marshals and it wasn't an official spectator area so there weren't any loudspeakers. And, and, you know, you see, for example, Mansell came out to do his lap and it just looks phenomenal, you know. His his hands are a blur and just a shower of sparks and the car looks electric and, you know, you just, oh, wow, sort of thing, you know. (laughs) And then Prost comes out to do his lap and he goes through a rouge, you know, his out lap. And it looks absolutely calm. And he comes through again and it looks slow and absolutely calm. So I think, well, maybe there's a little problem. And he comes through a third time and looks absolutely calm. I thought, well, you know, he must have had a problem because uh, you can't hear anything on the loudspeaker. So walk back up to the garage and uh, he's on pole. <laughs> and you couldn't tell you couldn't tell the difference between the out lap, the fast lap, and the in lap. It's just that level wow. 
of calmness, you know. And that is just fantastic. I, I know the Mansell thing is spectacular, and I know I was Rosberg's race engineer as well, uh, Keki this is, and he was just an ace bloke. Uh, I love the guy, but, and, but he was spectacular. He wasn't calm and smooth, he was just <laughs> spectacular. But Prost, you know, he could put you to sleep, he was so smooth, and yet devastatingly fast. Wow. Just incredible, really. Goodness me. Um, and Senna, I've heard you describing him before, working through a setup sheet. Mm. And he would want to yeah. work through every single parameter for every single corner um, and really scrutinise each one to think about how each, how each setup adjustment might, might affect him. Um, and it yeah. would take hours to do this. So it's not as though you would bolt a centre in and, and fast the car went. It, he, he put in an awful he, he, he worked at it. He worked at it. Yeah. You know, every second of his life was dedicated to winning races and winning a world championship. Uh, every second in the car, obviously, but every second he was at the track. And, and I remember once uh, in a hotel, you know, we came we came down to have dinner, and he was sitting there alone having dinner with with a pile of papers, you know, and analyzing all the data and uh, what can I do to be better. And then, as you describe, the 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 uh, debris could last for a couple of hours, and and he'd want to look at every parameter. And what will that do if we change it in every corner? And what will it do to the turn in, to the mid corner, to the exit? You know, and he would analyze every single bit of that over a period of a couple of hours. And sometimes you'd change quite a few things, and other times you might not change anything. But he would still want to analyze all of it and make sure that he was happy with all of it, even if he didn't change anything. So his dedication to the cause was just incredible. And I could imagine, I mean, that was in the car, at the track, away from the track. Uh, and I could imagine that uh, he must have slept for eight hours dreaming about how he could be better. <laughs> so so it, it was quite amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, great guy to work with. Uh, I know he was incredibly hard on his competition. And sometimes he'd even crash into him, uh, like Prost in a Ferrari at... Uh, at Suzuka, yeah. but um, you know we had a good working relationship, and and uh, he knew that I was helping him to get what he wanted, and so he was always really good to me, and he always wanted to share it with you. You, you know the radios weren't that good in those days, but when he'd win a race or do a qualifying lap, I knew what was coming. He'd push the button, and it'd just be euphoric, and it'd be part English, part. Portuguese, mostly unintelligible, <laughs> just the pure joy. And he didn't want to. He wanted to push the button and share it with you. You know. I remember sometimes he, he'd get out of the car. Uh, I'd be on one side and he'd be stood on the other, and he'd put out his hand to shake my hand, and he'd be shaking like a leaf. And I'd grab his hand in both of mine to steady his hand and. And just look at us, it's all right. You know, doing what you just did, you you deserve to shake a level of intensity was incredible. There was one, I mean, another couple of little stories. I remember one time, about five minutes to go in qualifying, he's not on pole and obviously he wants to be. Uh, and he says, I got a little too much oversteer. 
and I'd like to, I want to change the springs. And I said, take 15 minutes, we can't do it. And he just sort of looks at me like, you know, you're the engineer, fix it. Uh, so I stuck a three mil packer under the bump rubber in the front suspension and he, he went out and tried that and it was better and he put it on pole. You know, right. it, it was sort of that sort of working relationship, mm. you know. Another time, to show you the intensity, late in qualifying, oh, you only got a few minutes left and, and I'm saying, all right, we got to go. Uh, and he still just sits there. So I give him a little bit of time and I say, look, Ayrton, we, we've really got to go. Um, so he gives a signal, start the engine, and he sits there a little while longer and I'm saying, we've got to go. <laughs> and then he pulls halfway out of the garage and stops again. And I say, Ayrton, this is it. You have got to go. Uh, you know, Otherwise, he wasn't going to make it around for the checkered flag. He couldn't start his lap. And so he went and he put it on pole. And I said to him afterwards, what the hell was that all about? And he said, I was just trying to get my heart under control because it was pounding so fast and so hard. <laughs> that's the level of intensity. When you're Ayrton Senna, that's the level of intensity. That is what he's putting in to those laps and those races. Oh, blimey. Goodness me. What a privilege to have worked with all those guys. Um, and actually, <laughs> well, at the time, it's sort of just a job, and it's so yeah. intense, and there's yeah. so much pressure. You're just trying to get on with the job and just trying to do it perfectly. I suppose it's only now. I talk to somebody like you, and you say, oh, wow. And I think, yeah, well, I guess it was sort of pretty special times. Yeah. And a privilege and an honor for me. I'm very fortunate to have been able to participate in that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, also, it's a privilege for me to get to talk to you and hear those stories, and I hope everyone listening enjoyed <laughs> well, that's very kind. hearing your memories about Formula One. Um, and thank you also for talking about the Nichols N1A, your new road car that's coming um, very well, soon. Well, yeah, I think it's a totally different thing, and it's quite, quite exciting, really. Yeah, like is. I said, it's got a connection to the past and kind of an old world sort of car in a, in a modern world. And I think people, you know, the real enthusiasts will, will enjoy that, uh, that sort of thing. Mm. So, uh, well, we shall see. Thank you, Steve, so much for your time. Really appreciate yeah. it. And to everyone listening, um, thank you for tuning in and make sure you come back again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.